The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We know there's a grand jury convened, and we know that I think both of these people we saw today. Uh, Gabe Sterling and um, Raffensperger have now testified before it. I think they waited until after the election, so it wouldn't uh, count against them that they were participating. But it's just so powerful, the Georgia evidence. You know, in, in the other areas, we keep asking, well, is this a crime or isn't it? And can we prove intent? And with the Georgia phone call, it's more like, well, what's the defense? What's taking so long? I mean, this is not really ambiguous. It's a 67-minute phone call. His voice is threatening. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 22nd, 2022. It was day four of the January 6th committee hearings, this time on Donald Trump's efforts to coax, cajole, threaten, state election officials and legislators into overturning their state election results in 2020. We joined up once again in Twitter spaces to go over it all. In the virtual Twitter space studio with me were Roger Parloff, Quinta Jurassic, and Molly Reynolds, all Lawfare senior editors. We talked about where this story fits in with the larger narrative the committee is trying to spin. We talked about what is working and what is not working in the committee's presentation, and we took live questions from the audience. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 22nd, the January 6th committee hearings, day four. I want to start, Molly if we could, with a question of why this particular line of inquiry is of interest to the committee. What does it really have to do with the 1-6 insurrection, which is a little bit more attenuated than some of the other matters, and how does it fit into the larger story that the committee is telling? Sure. So I um, I guess I'll make a couple of points on this question. So one is, I think you're right that, um, like, connecting the events that were discussed today to the events of January 6th itself does take a couple more kind of steps um, than, say, the hearing last week that um, featured uh, Greg Jacob and Judge Ludig. But I think it's really important to establish exactly what Trump and um, others, Giuliani, et cetera, were doing. They were really coming at this question of um, overturning the results of the 2020 election from lots of different angles. 
I think that some of what some of the conduct that was talked about today on the part of Trump is where the greatest potential legal liability for him himself is. Um, and then I'll also say that bringing in, um, we can talk kind of separately about the first set of witnesses. So the Speaker of the Arizona State House, the two um, uh, folks from, um, from Georgia, the Secretary of State, and um, Gabe Sterling, who's the Chief Operating Officer, I believe, in the Secretary's office. Bringing, and then we can talk separately about the Fulton County election worker and her, her mother. Um, but bringing in those kind of three Republicans um, on that first panel, I think, is also really key to the committee's work to demonstrate that this is a bipartisan endeavor. Um, there are two Republicans on the committee and bringing in those kinds of institutional Republican actors to demonstrate that, that this is a bipartisan exercise, I think is another goal that the committee had with this particular hearing. Quinda, what are your thoughts? How to connect for you to the larger tale that they're spinning out? I think it's connected in time in that I guess it's kind of a flashback episode from uh, the most recent hearing before this one where we heard about the efforts to pressure Vice President Mike Pence into overturning the certification of the electoral vote. This is kind of, uh, you know, record scratch, freeze frame, take a step back, see what was going on in the Trump campaign before that. And I believe that this was Chairman Benny Thompson set things up at the beginning, essentially saying, you know, this is part of a series of efforts by Trump and his campaign that first they tried to stop the counting of the vote. Then they tried various other you know, lawsuits, other angles. Then they tried what we're discussing here, pressuring state election officials. And then as a last ditch effort, they tried pressuring Vice President Mike Pence. So this is sort of one stop along the line that led us to January 6th. Um, and I do think that the committee did a nice job in connecting what they were talking about here with January 6th. So uh, one of the election workers, Ruby Freeman in Georgia, who was uh, threatened and got threats of violence in response to a disinformation campaign against her by Rudiani and the Trump campaign. She, for example, was told by the FBI to leave her house in the run up to January 6th. Um, so I think it's, you know, if the, what the committee is doing is, is drawing a line between various elements of Trump's effort to overturn the election to the 6th, this is sort of one point um, along that line. I think in that sense, also, it's important insofar as it really underlines the role of violence, either threatened or real, in that effort. We got a little bit of a hint of that, again, in the previous hearing, where we heard about the threats against Mike Pence. Of course, there were riders chanting, uh, hang Mike Pence famously. But a lot of what the hearing was focused on today was what these election officials and, and election workers experienced in terms of harassment from Trump and, and his supporters. We heard stories, I think one of the most frightening involved uh, people breaking into the house of the uh, son or daughter-in-law of one of the state election officials, of forcing themselves into the, the house of the grandmother of Shay Moss, that's Ruby Freeman's daughter, again, a Georgia election worker. And so insofar as you know, January 6th was about a violent attempt to seize power um, on the part of Trump supporters. I think that these stories of violent harassment ginned up by Trump, you know, with a wink and a nod, perhaps not saying directly, go harass this woman, uh, but certainly, you know, pointing people in that direction really shows that, you know, this this was a, a tactic that he was familiar with. And so, though that perhaps that was, you know, came through on a different scale, on January 6th and was directed against you know, the a House of Congress rather than an uh, individual person, it was very much uh, the same sort of thing. So Roger, uh, Molly refers to the fact that some of Trump's conduct here is the area in which he may be most criminally vulnerable 
I assume uh, that is a reference to the Brad Raffensperger call and the ongoing investigation in Fulton County, Georgia. How do you understand the relationship between uh, this set of episodes and the rest of the 1-6 committee's inquiry? And what do we know about where things stand in Fulton County? Well, we know there's a grand jury convened, and we know that I think both of these people we saw today, uh, Gabe Sterling and um, Raffensperger, have now testified before it. I think they waited until after the election, so it wouldn't uh, count against them that they were participating. But um, I I don't think we know. I, I don't know more than that. But it's just so powerful, the Georgia evidence. You know, in, in the other areas, we keep asking, well, is this a crime or isn't it? And can we prove intent? And with the Georgia phone call, it's more like, well, what's the defense? What's taking so long? I mean, this is not really ambiguous. It's a 67-minute phone call. His voice is threatening. It's preceded by a call to uh, an investigator. Is also inappropriate. He's saying things like, uh, you'll be praised if you find it and whatever you can do, Francis. Uh, it's preceded by 18 calls and texts from Meadows to uh, Raffensberger trying to get the call because Raffensberger doesn't want to, you know, the whole call is inappropriate. Um, it's preceded by a, he retweets a tweet from Lynn Wood, the lawyer who his tweet is saying that we ought to be putting Kemp and Raffensburg or that they will be in jail soon. And then there are the not that really not disguised threats on the phone call. So that is really powerful stuff. I would also say, though, that all of the uh, false elector, fake elector scheme is uh, also sort of getting into criminal territory and a little stronger, really, than, you know, uh, just arguing that uh, Pence didn't have the power to uh, send back the votes. So let me let me home in on that for a second, because I was actually struck. I have thought of principally as a Georgia thing, too, until today. But watching this, I'm thinking again about uh, the Carter, Judge Carter's ruling uh, on the, the probabilistic ruling on uh, fraud against the United States and thinking that you have here a multi-state scheme in which the president is personally involved in at least two states, right? He personally calls the Arizona Speaker of the House and he personally calls Brad Raffensperger to try to get them to certify fraudulent materials and send them to Congress. And his uh, campaign keeps at it even after they refuse and actually procures fraudulent materials and so I guess I'm, I'm interested in the plausibility of it from your point of view as a federal matter. Uh, yeah, it, 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 to me, it, it's more of the theory that could either be a uh, corrupt obstruction of, a, uh, of, a, uh, of an official proceeding or a more likely uh, conspiracy to defraud the United States. But, um, you know, you had... You see the campaign lawyers bowing out of this because they know it's not kosher. You see the White House counsel saying, no, this is not legal. Uh, you see the electors who got involved calling themselves, you know, be, resenting that they were called useful idiots. 
I think there was evidence Trump was pretty directly involved in Pennsylvania, too. You have uh, Giuliani. Uh, he's, he uh, made sort of a uh, there was an incredible statement. Oh, we've got lots of theories. We just don't have the evidence. He tells Rusty Bowers at one point. And, and then the, the together with the fact that there will be this evidence that he knew he lost anyway. So, yeah, I think this is a, a criminal matter. Quinto, what do you think? Is it uh, did your mind find itself drifting toward the criminal? And as you listen to today or 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 were you able to uh, say, hey, the committee's job is to tell the story. It's not a criminal inquiry. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I, I appreciate you uh, setting up my own rebuttal to your question for me. <laughs> <laughs> of course, that is what I would say. Right. Like we should we should take the committee on its own terms. Everyone's. Uh, Heard me make that argument a million times before, so I won't push it here. But look, I mean, I do think that insofar as we are also conceptualizing these hearings as a, a bit of a nudge to DOJ, it certainly did seem to me, I will say, without having um, taken a close look at the relevant potential statutes here, that it, it, it didn't make Trump look uh, like he was in less legal jeopardy. I mean, I do think that re-listening to some of the audio from that Raffensperger call in light of everything we've learned um, and in light of all the conversations we've all had about, you know, what Trump's state of mind was, um, it is striking to hear the anger in his voice, I think, as, as Roger pointed out, when he's he's kind of berating Raffensperger in the way that he says, uh, you know, we, we just need 11,000 votes. We just need 11,000 votes. There's also this really striking audio of a call that he had with a, a Georgia woman, Frances Watson, who was investigating the allegations of election fraud, which I don't believe we've heard before. Please, someone correct me on that if I'm wrong, um, where he sort of says, you know, if, if it uh, turns out the right way, you know, everyone, everyone will be very pleased with you. And when I heard... You will be praised, Quinta. Right, right. And, and you know, listening to that, it, it really gave me flashbacks of, you know, Trump's comments to Comey of... I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go or his comments to uh, President Zelensky during the first impeachment saying, I'd like you to do us a favor, though. There's this very, you know, it's it's not directly saying I know that I lost and I'd like you to, you know, rig the game so that I won. But it's coming very close. And I think that the, the ability that Trump has to kind of walk right up to that line without stepping over, we have seen in the past how that created problems uh, for efforts to build a case against him, both in, under criminal law and under uh, the different standards of uh, impeachment. Um, so I would imagine that prosecutors in the Justice Department would face a similar difficulty here. But again, if you listen to that audio, as Roger says, it is really, really hard to come up with an innocent explanation. Yeah, so I will just add to that, that I think the complexity of the Georgia case to the extent that there is complexity is that they're probably dealing with a lot of evidence. So, you know, if you're Roger lays out, uh, we think of it as the crime is the Raffensperger call, but if you actually think about it from the point of view of a Georgia prosecutor, the crime may be the pattern, the whole series of actions, which includes every text message, every call, every person who was contacted, and you probably want to get every single one of them in front of the grand jury. And I suspect the fact that Raffensperger and Sterling really deferred cooperation until after the election probably slowed things down. Uh, but I would, I still think this is the area of maximum, as I said, the maximum vulnerability for the former president. And I am really curious to see what happens with this grand jury, the special grand jury now. So Molly, I, I want to 
back up here and situate this in the context of the larger story that the committee is telling. In the first hearing, they laid out a seven-part conspiracy, as Liz Cheney described it. Uh, we've now gone through a series of, of four, I guess, three, three or four parts. Where do you think the committee has been strongest and where weakest? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that I thought was um, really strong about this hearing was the degree to which it connected basically the content of the hearing. So this this effort to um, you know pressure state officials to uh, send different slates of electoral college votes to be counted. Both uh, connected that to kind of exactly what happened on January 6th. So there's the there's a, a lot of emphasis at the beginning on the, on the degree to which um, this becomes a call to action for those who actually went to the Capitol um, on the 6th. But also um, they uh, were careful at the beginning to also link the conduct that this hearing was discussing to things that are still happening in American elections. So there was a discussion, for example, at the start of a recent episode um, in New Mexico um, involving uh, a delayed certification um, of an election based on the fact that at least one of the individuals who was charged with certifying simply had bad feelings um, about about the voting machines used. So they're really kind of laying the groundwork for establishing that like this, this behavior um, and what Trump did here to undermine uh, the conduct of American elections is ongoing um, and the consequences of it are ongoing. The other thing that I thought was incredibly effective, it, it doesn't even feel right to say that because it was so troubling to watch, was that second part of the hearing um, featuring uh, Ruby Freeman and um, and Shea Moss. And, you know, the, the part where uh, Raffensperger talks about the threats to him and um, the Arizona State House Speaker talk about the threats to him, you know, those are people who, who stood for elected office. The piece of the hearing um, where um, Rochelle Moss uh, talks about what she and her mother and their family have gone through as a consequence of, you know, them stepping up to, to do their duty to this country during, as, as she put it, an election in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, that I thought was uh, was really just remarkable, uh, remarkable courage on the part of uh, of her to show up um, and just a really important part of this um, this overall story. The last thing I'll say where I think that, I don't know if I would say this is a place where the committee was weak um, today, but it's just a, a choice that they have made. So, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about kind of why have so few hearings, why not start the hearing sooner? This is a place where we saw a couple of those kind of sort of clip shows where they um, they edited together a series of footage from depositions with various state officials, um, campaign officials, et cetera, um, to kind of tell the story of the breadth of this effort to pressure state election um, and state uh, state legislators. But you could have imagined an alternative universe where some of those people actually came in as witnesses. Um, I think there are pluses and minuses to the approach that they took. But that is, that's a clear reflection of this choice that the committee has made to go for fewer hearings with fewer witnesses and rely more on produced video than bringing into the actual hearing room lots and lots of people who they spoke to. Yeah, so I want to I want to push you a little bit on that because I think this is one of the super interesting choices that the committee has made and I think it is unprecedented in at least my knowledge of the history of congressional investigations. It has the advantage of efficiency. You never know what somebody is going to say or whether you can force them to be a cooperative witness or show up at all. But you do know with absolute certainty what you have recorded them saying. And so you get to present uh, the other variable that it controls is, of course, will they say the same thing again? On the other hand, 
it does have the look of making the thing a little bit more of a cut and paste job and a little bit more, you know, controlled by the committee rather than an investigative hearing where you ask questions and they give answers. So I'm curious, Molly, ultimately, if the committee had asked you for advice, would you have said this is the way to go or would you have said uh, more traditional is better? So I think that conditional on the fact that the committee is really, and I've, I've made this point in a number of um, contexts before, the committee is really the only uh, entity that is doing an investigation as deep and as broad um, as it is that we will certainly see publicly. So we know that there's a grand jury that is sitting that is hearing evidence, but we, we do not know what will come of that. Perhaps nothing. Perhaps we will never learn anything about what, what was presented to, um, to that grand jury. And there are individual criminal processes Prosecutions, obviously, but the committee is the only the only body doing a public investigation that's as broad and as deep. And so, given that that's the world that we live in, and given sort of advice that was made early on to gather a lot of information and then start telling the world about it, I think this those sort of those two circumstances make this use of videotape testimony. I think probably the right move. Um, if they had called me a year ago um, and said, "What do you think we should do?" Um, I probably would not have recommended uh, waiting this long to start hearings. I'm really feeling like you're boxed into this this strong, concentrated push. But I think given kind of where we are, uh, what they're doing makes a lot of sense. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Roger, Quinta, what do you think? Do we vote yay or nay on the use of uh, pre-recorded video? Roger? I vote uh, yay. Uh, I, uh, I thought it was the right mix between live and incredibly powerful testimony and short clips to to convey that these these are not isolated incidents. It's the same thing going on in all these states. And I did think that uh, the people they chose, I had never seen Rusty Bowers before. and uh, But all of these people, I had never seen Ruby Freeman or... Uh, they were incredible. Shea. They were incredible. In very different ways. And it was very hard not to get choked up at some point during this uh, hearing. And, you know, and it was all... Jimmy Stewart sort of stuff, you know, since Americans doing the right thing. And uh, it, it made you feel good, but it also made you feel angry that they are going through this. That, and it's still, they still are. And, you know, when, when Shay Moss said, you know, none of those people, none of those election workers, the permanent election workers you saw in the State Farm film, none of them are still there because they don't want to go through this. 
and it, it, you can see that their lives are still upside down. And the, the human cost, I think, I mean, I, everything to me, and I know this isn't the point of the committee, but everything sort of goes back to me, to the criminal issue. And I think seeing all of these victims, these this collateral damage to this preposterous thing that occurred, you know, you need accountability. And uh, I just thought that was powerful. Quinta, yay or nay on the on the canned uh, pre-recorded vids? Well, first off, I'll just second everything that, that Roger said. Um, I, I will say I did wonder whether the ability to kind of use that pre-recorded video might have helped the committee present material from people who might not have been comfortable speaking in public or speaking that way in public. In particular here, I'm, I'm thinking of Ruby Freeman. Um, so we, we had this sort of setup where her daughter, Shay Moss, was testifying in person with her mother sitting behind her. Um, and Moss was clearly quite, quite nervous um, during her testimony. And then the committee would cut to recordings from Freeman's deposition testimony. Um, and I did wonder whether that, that setup, you know, might perhaps make it easier if it's difficult for Freeman to speak in public, given everything that she's went through, that that kind of uh, allowed that to get her on the record making some, I thought, pretty powerful statements about the way that Trump had unjustly targeted her and how it has really upended her life. Um, I will say, going back to, to Molly's point about, you know, the committee waiting so long to begin hearings, uh, Molly and I wrote a while ago that the committee was either going to need to uh, start holding hearings before it was done with its investigation or wrap up its investigation very quickly. And it's pretty clearly uh, chosen the, the former route, even though Benny Thompson had previously suggested that they had wanted to wrap the whole thing up before they started presenting it to the public. I have noted that during the last uh, today, and I think the last one or two hearings, uh, the committee has said explicitly before launching into its work, we are still investigating these issues. Here is our tip line. Um, and notably today, they actually closed by saying, you know, thanking the witnesses today for their testimony and saying, by the way, Pat Cipollone, former White House counsel, we're still waiting to hear from you, uh, which was very much a, a kind of, you know, teaser for future events and I thought a quite powerful way of underlining, frankly, the cowardice of Cipollone's decision not to come forward in comparison to Moss and Freeman, who, you know, feared for their lives and yet were still here testifying. Before we go to audience questions, uh, I have one additional question for Quinta. Quinta, there have been over the last few hearings a lot of references to various people's oath of office. And this is a subject that you have been writing about. Uh, since you and I wrote about it at the very beginning of the Trump administration, talk to us about the role that the oath is playing in these proceedings. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate the shout out. Uh, so, yeah, so you and I wrote at the, the very beginning of the Trump administration about how the oath is a sort of underlying moral principle of the presidential office that is sort of not thought of uh, particularly often and yet that Trump's own oathlessness really underlined. Uh, and so... Last week, I wrote with Tyler McBride, who's Lager's new managing editor, and Natalie Orpet, our executive editor, about how the committee has talked about oaths itself. They've come up again and again. Chairman Thompson and Vice Chairman Cheney have underlined their own oaths, the oaths of law enforcement officers who defended the Capitol on the 6th. Greg Jacob, counsel to Vice President Pence, uh, talked about Pence's commitment to the oath. So I think it's it's clear that we're, we're really seeing this as an important part of the story the committee, the committee is telling, that, you know, they're, they're pointing to people who upheld their oaths, and, and the witnesses today talked about oaths as well. 
Um, I think there, there was some really moving testimony from Bowers, um, who, who spoke at great length about the meaning that his oath had to him and that he, he felt that in asking Arizona to essentially undo the election, uh, that the Trump campaign was asking him to go against his oath. Um, so the story here is really one where the committee is underlining the sort of moral force of that promise that is made. And this is in sharp contrast, obviously, to uh, the president himself, who I think it's fair to say did not abide by his oath when he egged the crowd on on January 6th. Um, and, and of the oaths also of all of those members of Congress who went along and supported him. Uh, we have references to an involvement by uh, Representative Andy Biggs uh, trying to go along with sort of overturning the Arizona vote and uh, Senator Ron Johnson, uh, who was trying to hand a slate of fake electors to Vice President Mike Pence. And those are also people who swore oaths. And so I think in underlining this story, the committee is sort of also implicitly uh, rebuking not only Trump, but those other people who broke their promises. Molly, uh, what do we know about what hearings are coming next? Sure. So um, at present, we know there's another hearing scheduled for Thursday. This is the hearing that is was rescheduled from last week um, that focuses on kind of the efforts to use the machinery of the Department of Justice as part of this overall um, operation. And so that that is scheduled for um, for Thursday. We don't know too much about hearings um, beyond that point, but clearly um, the the committee is does have more um, that they that they want to do more witnesses um, that they are going to bring in. Uh, Roger. You have, during the period of these hearings, taken a little break from the hearings to go watch some criminal trials, which is a good reminder that the criminal track does proceed alongside uh, these hearings and they're, you know, kind of completely separate processes. Whose trial did you sit in on and what was the, uh, the source of your interest in the particular case? Well, I sat in on the, uh, the guy... Uh... Kevin and Hunter Seafried, uh, Kevin, you probably know, sort of, that's the guy that had the, uh, uh, the large Confederate flag, and uh, his son uh, actually was the fourth to enter the Capitol. He, he helped clear the window of the first shard of glass, um, and they, they, were, uh, they were all convicted. All right, we are going to go to audience questions. We have the great Michael Bromwich, former Inspector General of the Justice Department, and all around uh, great American. Uh, unmute yourself, sir, and the floor is yours. Excellent panel, thank you. Uh, and this is a question for all of you, two questions. Number one, is it worth the committee's while to invite Mike Pence to testify? Second question, is it worth the committee's while to publicly invite Donald Trump to testify? I will take a crack at both of those questions with two words, three words, yes and yes. Quinta? It's interesting you said yes and yes. I, I would have said no and no, or perhaps an, an invitation, but with no expectation of response. Um, I do think that Pence's own absence is notable, especially given how much we heard last week about you know his, his bravery in standing up to Trump, the fact that he is not only absent, but that his absence has not really been sort of remarked upon. The committee itself is quite something. When it comes to Trump, I, maybe my, my no is just an instinctive trauma from the, the drama of the Mueller investigation constantly going back and forth of, you know, are they going to try to get testimony from Trump? Are they not going to try to get testimony from Trump? Uh, they eventually, of course, decided not to on the grounds that it would just simply take forever. Um, and given the, the time crunch that the committee is in, 
I suppose my instinct is that it might make more sense for them to focus on the information that they they might actually be able to get from people who they might actually be able to hear from and, and persuade. But perhaps I'm simply being overly cynical there. But Quindle, why why not just issue the invitations if they don't show up? It's on them. If they do, it's potentially fruitful. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, frankly, I I can't imagine that they would show up um, or maybe Trump's lawyers will physically restrain him from showing up. So because I'm I'm sure he, he would love to give them a piece of his mind and call them the unselect committee to their faces. Mike, do you want to follow up? Yeah, just quickly. And I'll break your rule about only questions and and not comments. My answers would be no and yes. I think Pence is running for office and therefore you get a much less clear cut and hedging set of responses from him. As to Trump, I would say yes, because he has demanded equal time. And to Quinta's point, I don't think you would want to or even suggest that you're willing to litigate it. This would be a public invitation to testify voluntarily. If he says no, he shows himself to be the coward that he is. If he says yes, we're in for a show. Roger, what do you think? Would you uh, uh, invite Pence and or Trump? I uh, and I'm glad uh, Michael gave his opinion because I, I was actually going to ask him because I care more about his opinion on this than about mine. But for uh, for sure. But um, I I sort of thought there was an open invitation to Trump. Uh, am I wrong about that, Molly? Or I don't I don't know. Um, I don't recall. I mean, I think just to um, go back to what we were talking about before in the context of the sort of choice to rely heavily on pre-recorded video. Um, I think the it's really clear to me, at least, that the committee does not want surprises in the hearing room. Mm-hmm. Um, that they have gotten uh, one consequence of the fact that Jim Jordan at all are not actually on the committee um, is that we do not see the kind of behavior in the hearing room that we saw during, for example, the um, impeachment hearings. And so I think the committee has just really shied away from um, uh, having things that it can't control happen during the hearings themselves. Teddy Wilson, unmute yourself and the floor is yours. Hi, y'all. Thanks for the panel discussion. I was listening to the committee hearing today. One of the aspects of the fake elector scheme that they didn't seem to dig into as much was the involvement of state legislatures. And I was wondering if if y'all think that might have been a missed opportunity or they might address that in more detail later, considering some of the people that are running for office, both in state uh, state lawmakers and also uh, state election officials. Yeah, so it's a really interesting question, and I'll, I'll just say uh, to, to kick off an answer to it that part of the reason is that they are pretty single-mindedly focused on uh, Donald Trump and the events that led to 1-6. Uh, that said, they did you know, talk about the gentleman uh, in New Mexico. Uh, they talked about some of the violent uh, protests that they sort of argued presaged uh, 1-6 in Arizona and elsewhere. And so I think they kind of touched on it without really leaning into it. And I assume the reason they didn't lean on it is that they're, you know, not a state legislative investigative committee. They're kind of charged with telling the story of one six and they have a kind of narrative purpose as to President Trump, not as to any one of the states. Roger, Molly, Quinta, do you have further thoughts on that? I mean, just in general on things that it seems like may have gotten left out of this or other hearings, I will remind folks that we have the hearings that are happening now, and then there's the expectation that sometime this fall, the committee will release a large 
report summarizing probably not just what's come out in the hearings, but all of the other information that they have uncovered um, and found. And so I don't know if that will be a place that they take up this um, issue of state legislators more, but it is just a reminder that there's more to come. I think that's right. I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're sort of getting a, a report as the committee is still in motion and we haven't yet seen the final document, as Molly says. I mean, I also think it's a good reminder that, you know, giving a, a congressional committee the task of investigating essentially everything to do with January 6th on an unbelievably constrained time frame. Uh, they essentially had, a, I think, about a year and a half since they were first constituted. Um, it's just really hard because it's a really complicated set of things they're they're investigating. There are a lot of different strings to pull. There are a lot of different, you know, rabbit holes to to go down. And so I don't think it's surprising that the committee, you know, has, has sort of left out parts of the story in its public hearings. For example, they, I was surprised that they didn't talk more about the resignation of B.J. Pak, the uh, U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia at Trump's bequest. Um, so I'm hopeful that we may see more on these kinds of uh, loose threads in the final report. Um, but it is a reminder of just the unbelievable amount of material that the committee is sifting through and how complicated this story is. Yeah, I will just add to that, that the you know, the editorial decisions that they are going to have to make about that final report are very tough ones. In the context of, say, the Mueller investigation, you are disciplined by the evaluation of your of con the nature of the special counsel's office is that your report is about your prosecutorial decisions. So you're leaning against statutes and the way conduct and investigated material lines up against federal criminal statutes. Here, you don't have that, right? So you could report on anything from what's going on at state in state legislatures to federal law enforcement and intelligence failures to warn people, the Capitol Police, about 1-6, right? The whole world is, is potentially open to you. And the the scope and scale of that is really in, immense. And, and they've presumably collected all of it. You know, they've had more than a thousand witnesses. And so, you know, I, they're going to have to make some pretty significant decisions about what they are and aren't at the end of the day writing about. We are out of time. We will, however, be back Thursday evening after uh, Thursday's hearing. And until then, have a great day. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was Twitter. You should do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. Share us on all the socials, including Pinterest. Our Pinterest performance of late has been lacking, and I think that's because you have not pinned us. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the great Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.